Hi everyone, this is Kim C and you're listening to The Year of Underrated Stephen King, a podcast that explores Stephen King's lesser known novels and investigates all the exceptional writing we may have missed. So my friends, I am thrilled to be with you today presenting one of the best books ever. This book, my friends, this book is easily, easily one of my top five all-time favorite Stephen King novels. It is awesome. It is so wonderful and so precious, and there is so many good things to say about it. This novel is an overflowing enchilada of amazing. It's got everything. It's a ghost story. It's a murder mystery. It's a coming-of-age tale. It's retro. It's a little romantic. We have not one, but two daring rescues. We've got friendship. We have psychic children. We learn to speak like a carny. And it is all seamlessly woven together in the most beautifully balanced story. I love it. I just finished reading it. You can honestly read it in a day. I took two days because I was savoring it and swooning on many pages. But this is a novel that I wish I had a hundred copies and a little red wagon and I could just wheel it up and down my block and every single pedestrian that passed me I would just shove a copy in their face. Here, 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 here. You, Everyone gets one. It's that perfect for me, guys. This is, I feel, the most wonderful introduction to Stephen King as we have a delicate sprinkling of everything in a story that just is so satisfying. So, so satisfying. I am so happy to have this book in his collection and for us to talk about it. What's really fun about this story is Stephen King really wanted a very retro buying experience for the book, so it's only available in paperback. He used the publisher um, Hardcase Crime, which is sort of famous for the pulpy books of the 50s and 60s where there's a foxy lady on the cover and usually some sort of like pickup truck or weapon or mysterious moonlit silhouette of something but he really wanted uh, readers to go to a local bookshop peruse the wire racks and buy a paperback copy as it's really an old school experience that we don't see uh, very much at all anymore. So I don't believe this book is released as an ebook at all. He really was very strict about that, really wanting an old school book experience. If you do get a paperback copy, the cover art is so cool. It's something I wish I could just frame in my house right now. It's such a neat, um, really cool cover. There's another novel that was released about uh, eight years prior called Colorado Kid that's also hard case crime and I think that one's also really really short. Um, that might sneak in here uh, pretty soon to the podcast but 
This book was released in 2013. It's just under 300 pages and boy does it just deliver. It just delivers my friends. So in 2013 when the book was released, uh, Stephen King went on Good Morning America. He was talking with Willie Geist and he told him that the idea for this book happened 20 years prior where he had a vision of a young boy in a wheelchair flying a kite on the beach. And that's all he had. He just had that that little picture in his mind. And it was in the stew pot for two decades. And I guess the story just kind of built around it where what's down the way on the beach? And he created Joyland and created the most amazing story. And what's neat is the young boy in the wheelchair is a character who's really crucial to the story but we don't really meet him and get to spend a lot of time with him till the latter half of the novel. So I really like that. The main vision and inspiration for this book uh, it kind of just shows that you never know where the, art the artistic composition will will, will create, where, where it will guide you. So I love that um, it started with the young boy in the wheelchair but he's really not featured toward the latter half. What was also really cool in the interview with Willie Geist is he revealed that the original manuscript idea for The Shining featured the Torrance family taking care of an abandoned theme park in the off-season. So that was, instead of the overlook, it might have been a deserted Joyland, which I thought was super intriguing, but Steve changed his mind when he realized he couldn't really trap them. <laughs> he couldn't really keep them enclosed like a Colorado winter hotel could. So I thought that was really intriguing that there might have been spooky roller coasters instead of uh, Room 237. So uh, a little summary about Joyland as we dig in. We have a 60-year-old narrator named Devin Jones, and he is reflecting on a very defining summer in his life when at 21 in 1973, he's leaving a very unrequited college romance and taking a job on the North Carolina coast at a local theme park called Joyland. And Devin has a really charming summer. He works really hard. He makes friends. He does really well at his job. He's enjoying the beach life and reading Lord of the Rings and listening to Doors albums and decides to stay on for the fall semester and not return to school. And it's then that we meet uh, a young disabled boy and a single mom and the young boy has very special abilities that help solve a mystery of a young woman who was murdered at Joyland four years prior. So that's a little bit of the the meat in the sandwich with what Joyland is about. So how I'm going to um, 
dig into this oh so wonderful story is uh, the next section we're going to talk about what's unique about the book, what's what I'm really enjoying, what made me smile, and then I think the largest chunk of this episode is going to be heroes, villains, and honorable mentions because this story is a treasure for characters, guys. We have the most delightful cast in this story, so I really want to talk about them with you. I'm going to be very, very, very cautious with any kind of spoilers because this is a murder mystery, guys, and the whodunit aspect is crucial to an enjoyable read, so I am not touching that at all. I'm actually not going to even reveal the villain at all. I'm not going to mention anything like that because I really want you guys to have that experience. So if you have not yet read Joyland, you should be okay. I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the characters, but I am not even even going to touch any of the villains because I don't want to reveal anything. So I'm going to try and keep it nice and safe if you have not yet read the story. But if you have, we'll dig into some of the amazing characters that we have in this story and how charming they are and what they bring to Devin's life. And then um, we will transition into what's working and what might be falling a little flat or what I might have changed. But to be honest, my friends, there's not a lot of that. I am a little bit of a fangirl on this story, so I'm trying to remain objective, but it's very difficult when I love the story so much. But there are one or two areas that I that I could probably, you know, bring up and say, okay, we this might have been a bit stronger, but it's it's not a lot, guys. I'm such a fan of this story. So um, that's what is up ahead in this episode. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm so excited to dig in. So let's now uh, head into what's unique about this story. Before we start to dive into some of the unique elements of this novel, I did want to mention that I just finished reading it for the second time. I think a second reading of this novel is so crucial, my friends, in order to really pick up on the poignancy and the very strong um, emotion in this short little story. I think that many Stephen King fans might be on board to give it a higher rating if you do give it a second read-through. Um, my guess is because the first read-through, especially in the latter half of the novel, is when the murder mystery aspect of the story really ramps up to where in the second half there is so many touching scenes that are occurring uh, however, I was so focused on suspects and every new person and every line of dialogue of every character I was just analyzing and my spidey sense was just on high alert that I don't feel I was taking my time to be in the moment and really appreciate all the beauty. And so on this second read through, because I knew who the villain was, I was able to just let go of the tension-filled suspense of trying to figure out who did it, and I was able to really um, 
zoom in on some gorgeous writing guys some really beautiful storytelling especially um, with the character of Mike Ross and his mom Annie which I'm going to talk about in greater detail in our next segment but a second reading is highly highly recommended to anybody who may have been middle of the road for this book um, for the most part many Stephen King fans did give it high marks just because it packs a beautiful punch with all of the the characters and the emotion but I feel there may have been a few who aren't quite used to a short little uh, Stephen King experience and there's so much genre blurring in this story which I'm going to talk about here in a little bit that I feel there there might have been a uh, puzzled reaction of, of how to really digest this book but one of the first points I'd like to investigate is the language in this novel. I feel the language is super fun and super unique because it's carny speak and that was a blast to have uh, plugged in all over the place and it gives this story so much character and color and flavor. So some of my favorites that we see along the narration are Rube, Coney, Shy, Zamp, Kazuni, Butcher's Game, Down South, Chump Hoister, Spinning Jenny, Dog Tops, Point, Greenie. So those are the ones that I remember seeing the most. Uh, Zamp is a little kid's ride. goes uh, for three-year-olds to seven-year-olds. So Devin spends a lot of time in a cute part of Joyland called the Wiggle Waggle Village where he wears the mascot of uh, Howie the Happy Hound, which is super precious, so he hangs out on a lot of Zamp rides. Um, Greeny, of course, is like a greenhorn or new person. Chump hoister is what they call the Ferris wheel, or a hoister is the Ferris wheel, which the big one at Joyland is the Carolina Spin, which uh, is a very hotbed of activity in this novel. Spinning Jenny is the carousel, and then the one that's probably used the most is Carney from Carney. And this one, is we hear a lot with those basically giving street cred to themselves and the carny life because their father did it and his father did it so it's in the blood it's in the lineage and it's how they sort of assert rank um, by by saying you're carny from carny uh, so that one we hear quite a bit which is really cool this reminded me a lot of what happened in Lisey's story, the language used in Lisey's story, only I feel it's a lot more easy on the reader. In Lisey's story, uh, Scott and Lisey Landon talk in this lovely psychedelic code with all kinds of strange words and I feel in that narrative the reader has to just pick it up as you go along whereas in this story these words are really uh, defined for you right away so you're able to pick them up pretty quickly so when you do see them used you're not totally in the dark because there were several parts in Lacey's story where I was like what the heck is going on bad gunky and bool and so if you haven't listened to episode 6 I talk a lot about the language used in Lacey's story but here it was delightful and I really enjoyed it and 
this is a little bit of a side tangent, just a small one, but for those of you who have read Dr. Sleep, I realized that this novel, Dr. Sleep, also came out in 2013, the same year as Joyland. And if you've read the novel or if you saw the film, which was released last fall, um, the villains in Dr. Sleep are called the True Knot, and they use Carney speak all over the place, especially in the book. Uh, I remember Rose the Hat, their leader, and Crow Daddy were always saying rubes. They're just rubes, screw them, rubes, you know. So uh, the True Knot, I think, do have a little Carney in them in general, given the fact it's just this caravan of old vampirish uh, people scouring the country for psychic kids to murder and assimilate their essence for eternal youth and power so but the true not I, I definitely wonder if the if Mr. King just really enjoyed the carny vibe from Joyland and it bled over into Dr. Sleep, which is Danny Torrance's sequel. Uh, so the true knot, like Rose the Hat, is most definitely a carny, carny leader for sure. So it's a ton of fun um, learning all these words and seeing them used interchangeably and especially how quickly Devin picks them up. So loved the language in this story. The second area I want to explore is I really feel emotion was handled uh, quite well in this story, especially regarding melancholy, loss, and the big one I think is first love, unrequited love, and heartbreak. Uh, we see this right at the beginning of the novel where Devin is leaving school to and realizing that his relationship with Wendy Keegan is super duper on the rocks and we as the reader observe she doesn't give a crap about him and he's having a really difficult time taking a hint that she's blowing him off and ignoring him and he's in love and his heart is broken and when he finally really feels her ultimate sting and the ultimate break he goes through a devastating, all-consuming process. He uh, loses a bunch of weight, he's not sleeping, he has dark circles under his eyes, he listens to super sad records, he goes through all the emotions of hating Wendy, loving her, he has small suicide ideation, he, he's struggling. And I really enjoy that Mr. King explored that in such depth because it's such a human thing. I really feel that the first love in people's lives uh, in the story, I think it's quoted toward the end, is like first love stupid and something like stupid and psycho, like just the the madness of it all and the the pain for the body and brain and so I feel this quote on page 16 really sort of sums up poor Devin and his broken heart and I love that it's treated with such sincerity and it's explored so well so this is starting at the bottom of page 15 and then 16 I bet she wore the priest out when she did the old confession bit some things you don't want to know. Like why the girl you loved with all your heart kept saying no to you, but tumbled into bed with a new guy at almost the first opportunity. 
I'm not sure anybody ever gets completely over their first love, and that still rankles. Part of me still wants to know what was wrong with me. What was I lacking? I'm in my 60s now. My hair is gray, and I'm a prostate cancer survivor, but I still want to know why I wasn't good enough for Wendy Keegan. So I, I just felt the power in that, and I'm so glad that we got to see heartbreak explored in a strong way and I think the emotion is kind of what gives this small little book the powerful punch. Um, not only do we see it with heartbreak and melancholy, uh, for example Aaron Cook, the character who I'm going to talk about in greater detail in our next section, she uh, helps Devin immensely in the second half of the novel by tracking down clues to not only the murder of Linda Gray, but the previous murders of four other women who may be connected to it. And when she visits him, having already started her fall semester in college, she's left Joyland, she's really saddened and has a lot of pain and depression and she's really going through a lot having looked up these things to assist Devin and Devin feels a lot of guilt by asking his friend to do this and rather than a typical murder mystery I think that might glaze over these details of finding the facts and looking at the Xerox copies and just digesting in a huge info dump Mr. King has a more light touch here and delicately explores not only these brutal facts that they unearth, but the pain that one feels of researching this stuff and the residual effect of digging up the past. And I like that these small moments are explored. And it's these moments that I think make this novel unique and special. Like, we don't normally see that in a typical uh, murder mystery. and or a, a ghost story and so I really really like that. So my third point is the subtlety I feel is operating in this story and what makes it super unique. As I mentioned in the introduction, we just have everything in this story. We've got little, it's like a dessert sample platter. It's so good, but it's little bites of everything. Um, as I mentioned uh, previously, the ghost story slash murder mystery really, really uh, gains momentum after Joyland closes for the summer, which we get once we're halfway through the book. So then that's where it starts sort of coming together a little bit more, but throughout the book, we hear about the, the murder in the beginning of the story. We hear about encountering a ghost a little shortly after that, but it's a bit like, um, I, I can like envision just like a small animal scurrying over here for a drink of water and then scurrying away. I feel like that's what this narration is doing. It's just hopping, playing hopscotch. It's hopping over here, it's hopping over there, um, and we get a little tiny morsel, a little tiny taste, and then it jumps away. But then the emotion explored and the strong characters, I think you as the reader are okay with the jumping and with the flow and the fact that we're not really getting a lot of time on uh, on the page in terms of exploring um, the 
the main elements of the ghost story or the murder mystery or the romance or we don't have too too much time at Joyland than you think and so the subtlety here is so nice and this is why I feel this is an absolute genre busting uh, explosion of any sort of marginalization or siloing that could ever happen to Mr. King. I think he just busts out and says, I'm a jack of all trades and not only am I that, I'm just a master of all of them. So try me is what I think he's saying with this one. Uh, so for the, as we conclude toward the uh, character portion, one of my favorite passages in the novel to kind of round out what I was mentioning with the emotion is found on 220 and this is an absolutely beautiful piece that um, especially the last line. It's so beautiful. It, it makes me want to get a tattoo of it. It's so great. So this is uh, on page 220 and this is what I was trying to explain a little bit on how much of an emotional punch this little book makes. I remember Mike's day at the park, Annie's day too, as if it happened last week, but it would take a correspondent much more talented than I am to tell you how it felt, or to explain how it could have ended the last hold Wendy Keegan still had over my heart and my emotions. All I can say is what you already read, what you already know. Some days are treasure. Not many, but I think in almost every life there are a few. That was one of mine. And when I'm blue, when life comes down on me and everything looks tawdry and cheap, the way Joyland Avenue did on a rainy day, I go back to it, if only to remind myself that life isn't always a butcher's game. Sometimes the prizes are real. Sometimes they're precious. And that last line is so good and just drives home that final <laughs> punch, that beautiful sentiment. It's featured uh, in big bold letters on the very back where the synopsis is. And it says once more, life is not always a butcher's game. Sometimes the prizes are real, sometimes they're precious. I love it. It makes me want to either tattoo it or have a beautiful calligraphy uh, print that I could frame in my home. But I love that that last line is also drenched in the carnival mo motif. Um, Butcher's Game we hear used quite a bit with the carny speak of just being a money pit or a sinkhole where it's rigged and you're just gonna not have fun. Not only are you going to lose your money, you're going to not have fun. It's just going to suck all around. And so to see that, uh, sometimes the prizes are real, sometimes they're precious. It's just so lovely, guys. And so I highly recommend giving this novel not only a first read, but a second read, especially after you have the, the whodunit solved go back and look at, sift through these beautiful moments in the story and uh, these fantastic characters because there's, there's prizes. There's prizes everywhere. So let's go ahead and dive in to the most fun ball pit of characters I've encountered in quite a while.
Okay friends, let's go ahead and dive into a section I like to call Heroes, Villains, and Honorable Mentions where we put a spotlight on some of the characters who really made the narrative come to life. So I'm going to start with some heroes and then we'll kind of uh, work our way down through Honorable Mentions. As I mentioned at the start, I'm not going to talk a lot if, if at all about villains because I would like to keep it a mysterious surprise for all of you who haven't read the novel yet. Um, but I first want to mention Aaron Cook and Tom Kennedy. They are a delightful duo who come to the town of Heaven's Bay, which is about three miles from Joyland, and they rent a room in the little inn owned by Emmalina Shoplaw, and they meet Devin for the first time, and the three of them very much become like fast friends. And it's a trio very reminiscent of, of Harry, Ron, and Hermione. It's pretty cute. Um, but Erin Cook is a Hollywood girl she's hired on and in Joyland to be a little kitschy photographer girl called Hollywood Girls. They wear a green dress and they are super cute and they go around the park and take pictures and try and get people to buy a souvenir photo from Joyland. And then Tom Kennedy is a happy helper along with Devin, which is basically like you are the lowest of the low and you just do all the manual labor, you're a happy helper. Um, so the two of them, Aaron Cook and Tom Kennedy, actually end up falling in love with each other, which is not super fun for Devin, whose own heart is recovering from heartbreak, but he adores them. What's interesting, as I mentioned in the last section, Erin Cook is super smart, and her Hermione-esque features really shine bright in the second half, where she does help Devin immensely with learning about the mysterious murderer who's been killing women over a decade and how they may be connected to Linda Gray. What I love about Tom Kennedy, he's kind of like a tall, heavyset guy, he's pretty comedic. Um, in the latter half of the novel, as Joyland is sort of winding down for the summer, they all go to the haunted horror house where the ghost of Linda Gray is rumored to be. and. Coincidentally, Thomas, or Doubting Thomas as they call him, he I think he actually refers to himself as that, he is the unbeliever in the group. He absolutely does not believe in ghosts or the paranormal. He's just 100% uh, mocking it from the start. And they all ride the super spooky uh, House of Horrors ride on their day off from the park. And the ghost of Linda Gray appears to Tom only. And Tom is the one who really has a very difficult time because basically his entire perspective on life and death and all of the things, he has these giant existential questions after that and I think it alters his happy-go-lucky personality a little bit. But he is someone that uh, I, I was happy to see this theme echoed again with the unbeliever sort of having the strongest experience out of everybody else. Um, in episode 8, I just read Everything's Eventual and it reminded me of in the short story 14 
1408. Mike Enslin does not believe in the paranormal at all, and yet he has the most terrifying experience in 1408. So Tom Kennedy is the absolute perfect example of the one who doesn't believe it all gets the strongest dose of the paranormal. Um, as I mentioned in the previous section, the subtlety of this moment is, again, we see it once more. The It doesn't go into too much detail. He just sees Linda Gray in the outfit she wore when she was murdered, and she doesn't say anything. She just kind of was holding her hands out to Tom, and Tom is pretty forever changed by that. Another great part of the the narration is that Aaron Cook and Tom are friends with Devin for the rest of their lives. So it's really nice to see the start of this friendship and know in the narration uh, speckled throughout that they're friends forever. So I really enjoyed that. Uh, as I mentioned in episodes three and four in regards to Steve King and writing Senior Citizens, they are my favorite and he does it again with this precious woman whose name is Rosalind Gold or Rosie Gold aka Madame Fortuna Joyland's quintessential psychic fortune teller. So what's super fun about Rosie Gold and Madame Fortuna is when she encounters Devin, she's half, 50% of the time, she's an old Jewish lady from Brooklyn who's just this wonderful mother hen to Devin, always looking out for him and passing on loving motherly advice. And then the other 50%, she's Madame Fortuna, so she's channeling this Romanian gypsy vibe uh, in, including all of the um, stereotypical costume of the jangly skirt and then the jewelry and the headscarf and the magic ball and like all of it she just she just does it so well but what's super fun um, is that we find out that 90% of Rosie's talent is a little, is not, not quite on the mark, but 10% of it is dead on. And so there are a couple prophecies she gives Devin throughout the story that are 100% accurate and they change Devin's life forever. So I love her. She's so funny. We really get to hear the accent in the dialogue and she's older and delightful and she is one of my favorites and I do classify her as a hero because she does help Devin in several areas throughout the story as he's really really struggling especially in the beginning where he's really physically suffering from heartbreak and she's the one who tells him you need to eat food you need to stop listening to those sad Pink Floyd albums <laughs> or The Doors I think he was listening to a lot of Jim Morrison you need to really uh, get some food in you, stop thinking those negative thoughts, and it's going to be okay. You've still got good stuff down the road. So I love her so much. Rosie Gold is fantastic. So another hero is our precious 10-year-old Mike Ross. He is just casually mentioned at the beginning of the story when Mike is walking down the Heaven's Bay coastline to Joyland and he sees this little boy 
in a wheelchair with his little Jack Russell Terrier and waves and it seems that that is the image that started it all for this story but um, Mike Ross has muscular dystrophy, Duchenne's muscular dystrophy and he is very very sick. We also find out that due to a bad bout with pneumonia the winter before he just never really recovered from it and so he has random fits of coughing, he's extremely weak, and so he really kind of channels that Tiny Tim vibe for me. Uh, if you guys have read A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens, or if you've seen one of the thousand adaptations on TV, he's very, very much a Tiny Tim character who's just breaks your heart, but yet he's so impressive at the same time because Steven gives him a very quintessential um, mark of Stephen Kingness, which is to make him psychic or have a little bit of shine. Uh, what's cool is we don't really get a lot of strong detail on this. As I mentioned, the subtlety is so prevalent throughout this novel. It's like a little touch. Mike says that he, there's just a subtle knowing where he'll just say a random phrase to, to Dev and it doesn't really make much sense. But in the third act of this novel is when we really see Mike's abilities come full circle. And there's some awesome, awesome moments. One that happens at Joyland and one at the very end where it's pretty um, life and death. But Mike Ross is precious and there's a scene where he gets the whole park to himself at Joyland for a day. It's a heart crusher, guys. It is a heart stabber. I tried to hold it in, I could not. It's just so, so touching. So Mike Ross will break your heart and he is so cool to analyze and he's only 10. He's only 10, but he's lived so much more than that. So love um, Mike Ross. His mother, Annie Ross, is also a really cool character. She is another hero and What's cool about Annie Ross is she's very prickly at first. We find out she's a single mom and does not let people in. She is someone who is very lonely but so guarded, doesn't trust people at all, and she's really prickly with Devin for a very long time. Uh, Devin on his beach walks is very friendly and warm and wants to say hi, and she's pretty, pretty grouchy and standoffish for quite a while. It's Mike who really warms to him and kind of forces her to be to be friendly and to stop being so controlling and but you find out she's she's just tough as nails she has a father who's her financial benefactor but they don't have a good relationship at all and so I think that real the scorning from her father has really caused her to become very callous and we we see that and she is someone who when she does warm up is really quite special it's really quite special because you see this very hard woman but she has a special needs child and he's really all she has in the world and she's 31 to Devon's 21 so there's a lot of there's a little bit of time between there where she's she's been uh, batted around by life a little bit so she's got a little bit more wisdom under her belt but helps Devin 
seven and it really helps him toward um, the second final act of this book. So um, Mike and Annie Ross don't come into the forefront until the second half of the novel, but they're pretty essential. So it's really interesting, and I'll talk about this in the next section, about structure and how this story is, is structured is pretty cool. Some of my honorable mentions, I really love the innkeeper Emelina Shoplaw. She's delightful and she's just like this sweet dead mother and I, I love the whole vibe of the inn she runs because it's just this 1970s, she's just this loving person who knows everything about Joyland as her husband who she has now deceased. He used to work there. She just knows everything about the little beach town. She's a lovely caretaker to all the college students who rent from her. Uh, she's feisty and very southern, but she helps and uh, assists in unexpected ways and very, very knowledgeable. And so I really, she's an honorable mention for me. Um, another comedic guy, he's also not on screen for very long, but he's kind of, he's kind of uh, crotchety. Um, Gary Pops Allen, he's super Carney from Carney and everything that he says, is so funny. Uh, when Devin is learning the ropes at Joyland, he just gives him a hard time all the time, and he's so funny. And so I really enjoy uh, all the moments with Gary Pops Allen. He's my little honorable mention. So much charm, I think. Rosie Gold and uh, Pops Allen are so, so charming. Um, Let's see. Let's see if I have any more honorable mentions. I'm sure I do. There's actually two two to three others that we don't have a lot of screen time, but in reality, I could just list them all in this entire story. I truly could because they all have such charm, you guys. They're so lovely and quaint and they make this story come to life in extraordinary ways. So the only thing I will mention about the villain, the only thing is that when it is revealed in the text, I was sad. <laughs> That's all I'm going to say. It was very saddening. It was very saddening to to learn who this person was. I was saddened. Uh, I also did not guess. Uh, my dad read this story and we talked about it recently. He did. However, I think if you are Either I just missed it completely, but I know my dad reads a lot of um, intricate murder mystery plots. So if you're well versed in that genre, you might be ready for it and you'll, you might be really uh, strong and adept at the clues. I was not. I did not get it at all. Maybe because I didn't want to. There's that as well, but that's all I'm going to say. Um, what we can do is, uh, if anybody would like to talk in depth about the villain, on whether you, what your thoughts are, feelings, if you feel it was a good move, a bad move, there's actually a sort of puzzling aspect to the, the villain in regards to Stephen King always talks about how he never really knows how a story is going to end. He sees books as something to be discovered, much like if you're walking along the beach and you just happen to stumble 
stumble upon something. That's how Stephen King approaches his writing, and I really feel that's what happened with this, because there are some moments at the beginning on my second read where I was, I had some head-scratchy moments. So please write in to underratedsk at gmail and we can talk about the villain a little bit and I would love to hear your thoughts and uh, on what you feel was good, bad, and ugly about that situation. But for me, it's this person is very, very part of the story. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> I know I keep saying more things, but um, I'm not going to I, I really want to keep it a secret um, and then maybe what we'll do if we have uh, enough people write in we'll just do a sort of little separate mini episode and we'll talk about this villain a little bit um, uh, and uh, what the thoughts were. I, I just was saddened. It, my heart was a little heavy with the reveal. Um, but that's, let's see, um, I think that is the majority of everybody who I wanted to mention to you because as I mentioned, I could just list them all. I really could. I enjoy them all so much. This is such a lovely character book. Um, the only one that I was wanting a little bit more from is Fred Dean, which I'm going to talk about in our next section, which is what's working and what's not. Let's round out our investigation of Joyland by taking a look at what's working in this text and what might not be working so well. So the first point I'd like to bring up is novel structure. So I think this was such a delightful way to string together this story and one of the first things I loved right away was that our narrator Devin is writing this as a 60 year old man and I loved that we knew that within the first five pages of this story that this is an older man sort of reflecting on that and I think that reflection that knowledge for the reader right away really allows for that emotional poignancy to start planting right away um, whereas in some of our some of the other stories you know we could have just had 21 year old Devin starting this adventure and then at the very end it's revealed that you know he's an old man etc etc but the fact that we know it's a memory and we're reflecting on this summer I think puts everything in a brighter light um, so every moment is kind of explored with this reverence uh, from Devin and I loved that and then the second aspect of structure that I enjoyed so much is how we really have two stories we have the story that's pre-summer and summer which is Devin leaving school sort of realizing his relationship is crumbling and then making the move to heaven's bay and the north carolina coast working at joyland all of the sumptuous details about this new job and just the fun and the world the world building of, of joyland that we get to learn and then the narration really does change completely uh, around halfway through the book when the summer ends and now we have the fall and so certain characters pick up and leave 
Tom and Aaron go back to college and Dev makes this big decision where he doesn't want to go back to school. His heart's still broken. He really found some peace um, staying at Joyland and working hard and kind of dissolving into this new role and he's made friends and so we really get an entirely different book in the second half once fall rolls around right after labor day is when it all switches labor day is i think the last big day of admission for enjoyland and then after that we see dev um, in an empty park and everybody's polishing things and cleaning and locking things up for the off season and this is where he meets um, Mike Ross and Annie Ross and they start to spend more time together and so the narration is completely different and then we get the reminder to the reader oh yeah there's Linda Gray's ghost and there's this serial killer out there and we have no clues and we don't know what's going on and so the first half is is just a beachy and as fun as can be and really just an enjoyable youthful um it's got so much zest and charm and then the second half is when we do get this more dialed in uh where the the plot and the conflict really really float to the surface and the reader's like oh yeah i forgot like this isn't just summer fun this is this is a mystery this is a ghost story this is you know um new characters we have this psychic little boy who's disabled and so i love the fact that we have both of those together and i think they're perfectly sandwiched i love the fact that the whole story is not just summer at joyland so we don't just we're not just in the park the whole time and even though that would have been awesome and it would have been a really fun summer, we get this kind of second half, which is really awesome. So I love the structure of the second half of the novel beginning post-Labor Day. So this is a lovely book to read maybe when summer is beginning um, or when back to school. It's, it's so soaked in the season of school and summer and fall and it's, it's pretty magical. So the structure is something I'm really enjoying. Um, piggybacking off of structure, the setting. Oh, my friends, this decadent, rich, delicious meal that is setting for us. It's fantastic. Um, similar to Under the Dome in episode three, you just really get such great description of Chester's Mill where you feel you, you even have a map to kind of guide you where things are and you really start to feel that bird's eye view of the town. I 100% feel that and more with the setting of not only Joyland, the theme park, all the attractions. We've got the Carolina Spin, Ferris Wheel, we have the Delirium Shaker, you have the Kid Wiggle Waggle Village, you have um, Joyland Underground, which is the underground tunnels that a lot of the happy helpers, including Dev, who's always wearing the fur, um, which is Carney speak for wearing the mascot of Happy Howie where he has to run under under Joyland to get to these various locations. Um, so the 
not only is Joyland super sumptuous in concrete details, you can really start to visualize the boardwalk, but in the quiet moments when Devin's not in Joyland, um, he has a three-mile beach walk twice a day to back to Heaven's Bay, back to Emelina Shoplaw's Inn where he's renting a room. So he walks three miles every morning and he stops at Betty's Bakery and gets a bag of croissants and they're warm and he's eating them along the cold water. And so we just have this gorgeous little stretch of land. Uh, Mike and Annie Ross's house is on his walk. They live in a gorgeous green Victorian mansion with their backyard opening up to the beach and so he waves at them every morning and he sees Mike Ross with his dog who waves and on the one morning when Mike is having bad luck getting his kite in the air is when they have a wonderful sort of meet cute but the setting of Joyland and Heaven's Bay and the walk as as well as the inn. Uh, Emelina Shopla runs her inn. It's like in such a hippie way where there's just, there's a community phone and you have to jot down how many minutes you're, you use the phone for and she's she plays Scrabble in the little common area and her, her little inn is so cute and Dev's room is on the second floor and it faces the beach and there's just such sumptuous, gorgeous, rich details about setting and the place just comes to life to where when this story is done I just miss, I miss it all. I miss the vibrancy of Joyland being up and running, I miss his beach walks, it just comes to life. So. Coming up on the podcast, when we get to Duma Key, we're going to have another beach walk where um, Edgar takes a beach walk every morning to see Wireman and um, this lovely old lady who I forget her name who uh, owns Duma Key. So that one's coming up. So we'll have another beach walk to enjoy together here pretty soon. But I. The setting is something I love so, so much. It comes to life. It's so real for me. And it's in that day-to-day that I feel that's when you're like, okay, this book is alive. This book is alive with how much my imagination is active and I'm in it and I love the movement and the proximity and everything's coming to life. So setting is just working so, so well. Another aspect that I think is also really well done, this is a little bit back to when we were talking about characters, um, not revealing anything about the villain, but I did not guess who it was because I feel the notion of red herrings, the red herrings are working great. Um, There's so many of them. There's some pretty strong ones actually, and you as the reader, follow that carrot and it's totally wrong and but the I I just love how effortless and how well done the red herrings are in this story and on your second read they're so cool to spot they're they're really um, this this second time I was really able to look at them in a new way and appreciate them I was like oh man I that that path that led nowhere that I followed last time, now I see it was genius. It was perfect. Everything's subtle. Everything is just this gentle little tiny bend in the road that you end up going down that path and it's a dead end. But the red herrings are great. The subtle hand. Um, 
What's also really nice is when we do get the final reveal of the villain, there's a phone call. That's all I'll say. There's a phone call where Dev is actually talking to this person and you still don't know. There's still not a concrete reveal. You're still guessing and you're going crazy and there's so much suspense because you're like, who is it? And then, uh, so reading it again the second time, I was just really able to appreciate the red herrings. Super old school um, and I love that in a mystery to just follow that dead end and it's frustrating at first but on the second go round I appreciated it so much more and saw that they were very well done and thrown in in a way that was super fun for the reader so red herrings are working very very well um so the only area that I did want a little bit more of and this is a hot button because maybe I can hear from you guys after you read Joyland and maybe I didn't need more maybe I mean in general, I just want more of Joyland because I love it so much, but at the same time, I am so satisfied by the length and that I feel totally um, comfortable with where it concluded that I'm, I'm really okay with all the, the creative decisions that he made. However, there's one character, there's one character in this story named Freddie Dean. He's kind of the HR person at um, Joyland. He takes care of everybody. He gets all the onboarding paperwork done for everyone. He is really interesting and he's very kind and he is mysterious. He's mysterious in a way that, um, you know, he, he also becomes a really good red, red herring a little ways down the road, but he is somebody I wish we would have had a little bit stronger character information about. I feel with some of the others I mentioned, you either got to know them pretty quickly through their dialogue, their character. Um, for example, there was a guy named Eddie Parks who I forgot to mention. He was a crotchety guy who Dev actually helps him out quite a bit um, in the novel, but he's this crotchety guy from Boston who's just mean and spiteful and has a really thick Boston accent. So we learn a lot about him, and um, especially after Devin comes to his aid. And so Freddie Dean, I just feel I would have wanted a tiny bit more information on Freddie Dean. He's still very much in the shadows for me, which made him an excellent red herring, but not to reveal too much plot, but Freddie Dean's a red herring. But I would really like for you guys to maybe give me your thoughts on whether it was just the right amount for, for Freddie or if maybe there was opportunity to include a little bit more because I feel every other character in this story got just the right amount of meat for me to care about them, for me to remember them and make them memorable for me and in Devin's in interactions with them. And so Freddie Dean is the one who I think about and I can't really attach him with much other than what he does at Joyland. Um, there's a couple moments where I wish it just could have been explored a deeper character for him.
However, the more I think about Joyland, I wonder about these characters that didn't get a lot of spotlight and I wonder if maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that is sort of a good thing to have the mysterious characters like Freddy, who is most definitely Carney from Carney, and that's about all we know. And it kind of makes me just curious and, but it's, he is one character that I'm craving a little bit more. I got a good taste throughout the narration and I'm craving a little bit more. Um, however, I can be swayed. I can be swayed and I would love to hear from all of you guys um, in regards to the character of Freddie Dean. And there's also others. There's a lot of characters in this novel that if you felt there was maybe too much of one and maybe not enough of others, uh, this one is very near and dear to my heart, you guys. This Joyland experience is delightful. There's just something about it, and maybe it's just me. Um, maybe it's, I'm just some, I don't know. Maybe maybe it's the melancholy, maybe it's the emotion, but I, I love this novel so, so much. It's very, very special to me. I know that with other Stephen King fans, it's kind of a three-star and a meh, like a forgettable novel maybe because of the pacing or the fact that it doesn't go as in-depth as other Stephen King experiences but I think there's something to a second reading where the power of this brief little book um, grows and grows and grows at least it did for me so I so that's about everything I have honestly I racked my brain guys I really did I tried to kind of look at this novel and think of what else is not working for me but I I can't find anything. <laughs> I love it. However, as I've mentioned in other episodes, these books are always open for discussion. So if you guys have uh, something about Joyland that you want to talk about in terms of maybe I need to take off my rose-colored glasses and look at it um, and lift up, lift up the rug and look under there and maybe there are some plot holes I didn't realize or maybe there, there are a couple negative things that we can have further questions about. I welcome them all. These books are always open no matter how long it's been. I love investigating them and I will continue to want to always hang out in Joyland. I love this book but I welcome any criticisms. I also would love to hear from you guys on whether on why it is maybe just a three star for you or maybe it's one that is a one-time reader for you and maybe you wouldn't be enticed to read it a second time. I'm looking forward to hearing any and all of your thoughts because this one is very special. It's really cool. That's about all I have in terms of what's working and what's not. I will conclude with this last beautiful quote that I've mentioned once before, but it's too good to not say it again. Life is not always a butcher's game. Sometimes the prizes are real, sometimes they're precious. So thank you guys so much for listening. Up next, we're going to explore Just After Sunset is our next short story collection. But I've really enjoyed my time with Hard Case Crime. So there's one other teensy-weensy little uh, Stephen King novel called The Colorado Kid that I might have time to just squeeze in here pretty quickly and we can stay in the vein of the Hard Case Crime and maybe talk about that together. So please write in 
with any questions or comments or observations in any of the novels we've discussed thus far. I'm looking forward to hearing all of your thoughts at underratedsk at gmail.com. So wherever you are in the world, please take care and I will talk to you soon.